Hello, and welcome to the New Books and Popular Music podcast. Today, I speak with Don Deerdorf, the author of Bruce Springsteen, American Poet and Prophet. Our conversation explores the artistic influences on Springsteen, his engagement with the crisis in masculinity from the 1950s onward, and how he embodies certain elements of postmodernism. Hello, Don. Hello. How are you doing today? I am doing very well. How are you? I'm doing great. Well, um, we're here talking to you about your book, Bruce Springsteen, American Poet and Prophet. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, why you decided to write this book. Well, I'm an English professor uh, at Cedarville University, a small uh, school in the Midwest, and uh, I teach American literature and uh, literary theory and writing. And I'm fortunate enough to teach at a, a school that evaluates me mostly on uh, my service to the students, my teaching ability, uh, my service to the school, service to the community, and uh, only secondarily on publishing. So it gives me a great deal of freedom to publish outside uh, my, the sphere of my uh, PhD studies, which was 20th century American literature. And so I decided um, when the opportunity came that I was going to uh, write a book about um, a musician that uh, has greatly influenced so many lives in America and beyond, and certainly my life, and that is Bruce Springsteen. And um, I had a chance to do it um, because um, I I'm at a school where we don't have to necessarily produce um, a great deal of publishing um, on any given field, say 20th century American literature. I can broaden out and publish on uh, many other things. And this was a real passion of mine because like so many people, I'm such a fan of the boss. Well, um, I know there's a lot of books out there. So um, how is your book maybe a little bit different from some of those that are out there? There are quite a few books on Bruce Springsteen. I was um, surprised when I began to research this project to see just how many people had uh, written, especially um, uh, critical biographies or uh, light popular biographies on his life. And there were also some very good books um, about uh, the lyrics of his songs and what they mean and how they should be interpreted. And so I decided to fashion this book as a cultural study to look at exactly why his music has resonated so deeply with so many people. So I broke it up into chapters that each of which deal with um, a way that that at least I argue that um, his music has been received and has been so influential. In, research, in researching the book, what did you learn about um, the influences on Bruce's music? What musicians were important to him? What books? What films? That was really interesting, and it took me a long time to research that portion of the book because he's had such a long career, and his influences are so long and so varied that um, it, it's difficult to, to catalog them all and put them in any sort of organizational uh, order, but um, certainly you've got his biographical influences in terms of his family. Um, so many of his early songs are about his father and the relationship he had with his father, Doug, um, his mother, Adele, um, his sisters, Virginia and Pamela. And um, then, of course, you've got a bunch of songs about his friends um, going through the experiences of uh, young males who were born and raised in the late 40s or early 50s with certain expectations about how life would be, only to have those expectations ripped out from under them by events like Vietnam, um, by 
many recessions by the, the tumultuous events of the 60s. So you've got plenty of songs about, say, Vietnam, about um, the difficulty of finding work, um, the difficulty of dealing with being a father. Um, and then, of course, you've got all the artistic influences, the music, um, you know, his earliest influences, you know, just uh, basically 50s pop music. You know, Elvis um, was one of his uh, biggest early influences, which is why you see on the cover of Born to Run, if you look closely, he's, he's wearing an Elvis Presley button um, on, his, on his jacket. And then, of course, you've got Bob Dylan. You've got Buddy Holly. Um, later on, you've got Hank Williams and Johnny Cash and Roy Orbison. Uh, later on from that, you've got Woody Guthrie and Pete Seeger, um, both artists to whom he did um, uh, tribute records uh, later in his career. And uh, boy, then you've got all the authors because he'll say in his interviews that probably from, oh, the early 80s that that books have been more of an influence on him than music. And he cites uh, Bobby Ann Mason, uh, who wrote about Vietnam. He recite uh, Ron Kovich, of course, um, who wrote Born on the Fourth of July and um, was a huge inspiration in, uh, in Bruce writing the song Born in the USA. Um, you get Walker Percy, who he greatly admired, uh, Flannery O'Connor. Um, and Percy and O'Connor, interestingly, both Catholic writers. And you get that sense of... Um, uh, a kind of haunted Catholic imagery running through a lot of his songs. Uh, you get John Steinbeck, and of course he wrote uh, Ghost of Tom Joad, in part as a tribute to Steinbeck and his works. Uh, there's just so many influences on him, but those are some of them. Yeah, um, it seems like a Bruce Springsteen American poet and prophet is almost a social history of the United States through the lens of Springsteen's lyrics. Um how did Springsteen's own experiences in the 50s and 60s reflect what is happening in American culture at this time? Yeah, I think he's a perfect microcosm of what was happening because you've got in the 1950s um, a, a sense of incredible optimism running through the country, or at least a good portion of the country, um, where you know economically things are looking up. We have just uh, won a world war. We've survived a depression. We've survived a dust bowl. And that generation who survived it all is now inheriting um, incredibly, incredibly uh, favorable economic conditions. And that is coinciding with some amazing technological advances. So people are buying cars. People are buying homes. People are buying microwaves and things to go in the homes and televisions. And um, it's just a very optimistic time for an awful lot of people. But, of course, not for all people. There are people that are on the underside of that dream. And that is Bruce Springsteen. He uh, grew up in a working-class family. Um, that I think you would, would say is lower middle class at best, perhaps poor at times. His father was in and out of work, he worked as a, a bus driver, a security guard. He uh, worked in a, a rug factory. Um, the family didn't have much money. And so what you saw with Springsteen is a guy who witnessed a certain set of expectations, say on television or listening to friends or um, going to the movies, you know, a sense of, hey, we're America, we can do it, things are good. And yet in his own life, he doesn't see that. He sees the underside of that dream. 
And that's what he writes about an awful lot in his music are people that uh, are at the other end of the spectrum from what we want to believe is the greatness of our country. And he gives those people voice. And that's a big, big part of his music. Yeah, a lot of a lot of your book, actually the book does a tremendous job of weaving uh, various Springsteen lyrics in and out of the narrative. It's very impressive uh, to read, and I think it's just even enjoyable to figure out what lyric is going to come up next if you're a big Springsteen fan. Um, are there any sort of lyrics in particular that kind of uh, jump out to you as capture that attitude or that perspective from the 1950s and 60s that, that, that Bruce that Bruce was uh, talking about. Mm, There are so many songs in which he introduces characters that um, clearly have tremendous expectations and yet those expectations are not met and they're not sure what to do. Um, And you you see songs like Thunder Road um, where you have a guy who he, he wants to have life mean for him. He wants to have a function. He wants to use his talents. He wants to have love. He wants to have a car. (laughs) He wants to um, live life more abundantly, but he can't do it. He is uh, trapped in a melange of circumstances that so many young kids were trapped in as they moved uh, from being born in the 50s to being raised in the 50s and 60s to coming of age as adults in the 70s among all, so many different recessions and um, a lack of, of economic opportunity, among other things, in Vietnam for one. And they just find themselves frustrated, but they, they never give up. And you see in that song uh, where he says um, to, uh, to Mary, he says, you know, Hey, I know it's late, but we can make it if we run. And I think that is a line that has always stood out to me, that sense of um, I know things are tough. I know it's bewildering. I know we've been knocked around a lot, and I know we're feeling a little older now, but there's still hope. We can find a new narrative. We can find a new way, and we can make it. We can carve out a new path, and it can be a joyful path. That line has always stood out to me. That's great. That's really great. Well, kind of building on that, um, I was really interested that you included a chapter about masculinity in Bruce Springsteen's work. Um, mm-hmm. So what, what kind of insights does Bruce have um, for sort of the changes going on in terms of gender and masculinity in America during this time? I, I think he has quite a few, and I think that they are uh, very redemptive for men who uh, – I think have been in crisis for the last 50 years. I mean, you got to think of um, people like him. They're they're white, uh, male, and um, traditionally have been uh, brought up to think of themselves as uh, having a function, having a place. America is going to be good for them. And then they go through a number of changes, you know, from, um, you know, wars in which so many of them are sent off to fight, and die, and then the ones who survive later question, what was that for? Was that really a, a necessary war? And they conclude, no, it wasn't. And they come back on the home front, and uh, educationally, um, you know, it costs a lot more to go to college. There's a lot more competition. Some of them have fallen behind there, and certainly boys 
if you look at the statistics now, have fallen well behind girls um, in that area. And then you look at the movements of the 1960s, you know, the feminist movement, which, of course, by and large is a wonderful thing and a very good movement. And it's been very positive for our society. But yet it's really changed the, the ground on which men walk, um, especially young men who are thought – who are brought up to think of themselves in certain roles – and very much encouraged through television and movies and textbooks and all manner of other things to think of themselves in certain roles. And suddenly those roles are no longer available to them. Well, where do you go? Where do you go to even express that frustration? And Springsteen does a great job, I think, of not only living through that frustration himself, but expressing it on behalf of others. And so one of the big things that he does is, um, you know, in a song like Factory, you know, he says, hey, if you're a worker out there and you're stuck in a dead end job and you feel like it just destroys you as a man, I know how you feel. Um, in, uh, in the river, if you're a young husband out there and you suddenly have a child and you feel ill-equipped and you don't have a good education and you don't really have a good job, I know how you feel. Um, even in 2005 on Devils and Dust, you know, if you're a soldier and you're young and you're in this war and your friends are getting killed and you feel um, emotionally unsettled and you don't know if it's a good thing for you to be there, I know how you feel. <laughs> um, you know, even things like Glory Days, you know, the athletic template that is held up for so many men and which can be quite a mirage for a lot of men. Um, a song like Glory Days exposes that. And so I think um, part of what he does is that he shows us that that, hey, I know that um, there's a lot of of uh, false um, misleading models of male behavior out there. I know that you're living them and I understand that. And so he exposes those. But then he also, I think, gives men a pretty good plan of what to do in the face of so many outdated masculine templates. You know, for instance, in a song like Galveston Bay, um, which is a, a beautiful and underrated song, I think, um, he shows that one of the things that a man absolutely needs to do to find any place in contemporary society is to tap into his talents and find a way to use them meaningfully. And so in Galveston Bay, you get a guy who's a fisherman and um, he loves being a fisherman and he's good at it. And he can parlay that into um, uh, a life where he can support his family, where he can feel like he's um, contributing to society, where he feels like he's doing something good with his life. And then it's interesting um, that – once you once you have these talents, um, and once you 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 find a way to um, get yourself a place in society, there's a, an emotional component that has to be satisfied, and that seems to be in the way so many Springsteen characters admit their weakness and cultivate, um, I guess you'd say, emotional intimacy based on vulnerability. You got a lot of men who are hurting in his songs and they're vulnerable and they make themselves emotionally available and they find their way through it, whatever their trouble is, by doing that. So you get a song like uh, um, on Magic, which was released in 2007, which is I'll Work for Your Love. 
And um, it's a beautiful song, and you can dance to it, but it's also a great song for showing what Springsteen thinks about masculinity. You get a guy who he, he's been beaten up. He's been through the wars. Um, he feels the pain that a lot of men feel, but he admits that. And he's going to find a way to make himself emotionally available for this woman and literally work for her love. Um, and there's going to be a kind of mutual reciprocity there. So you get emotional availability, you get the use of talents. And then once you get those two things, you see him uh, inventing characters that can then serve others and make other people's lives better, almost in the manner of an existential hero. You know, a song like Jackson Cage, for example, where um, you've got a woman who's really hurting and you've got a guy who is really hurting, too. But he's going to reach out to her. He's going to make himself emotionally available, and he's going to use whatever talents that he's got to help her have a better life. And so you see um, a, a pretty convincing, um, broad-based, and um, understandable template that he offers men, um, most of whom I think um, – well, maybe I shouldn't say most of whom, but I, I think an awful lot of whom are fairly confused about exactly what their role is supposed to be. Well, that, that, was a, that was a great answer, and it, it sort of shifts kind of where I thought I was going to go with my next question. My next question was really going to be about uh, Springsteen's social activism, but I want to kind of link what you were saying about masculinity um, a little bit to it, because it's, it seems like, I guess I'm wondering, do you see Springsteen's efforts to engage sort of this confused space that men are in? Is that a, is that a form of politics? Or is it kind of political in the way he, the way it works? Well, that's a good question. Um, certainly, he's gotten ever more political as his career has gone on, and um, I guess you could say, in the way of thinking of many critical theorists, that almost all speech is political. Um, I'm not. I'm not sure the extent to which he envisioned his. Um, writings about masculinity as being political, but they certainly function that way because I think they're part of a larger social agenda that he has, which is generally um, a kind of Camusian um, existential agenda uh, peppered with um, a kind of broad-based um, uh, theological concern that we should try to make life better for people. And I think he wants to make it better for men who are confused, uh, confused like he was when he was a kid, confused like his dad was for so long. Um, I think he wants to make it better for women. I think he wants to just um, be a voice that, um, as he says, reduces the distance between the American dream and the American reality. And in order to do that, you've got to try to make life better for as many people as you can. And um, I think so you see that with masculinity and men, but you see it in so many of his other songs with so many different um, groups of people, so many different issues. You think of um, as early as 1984, um, you know, he's writing um, songs like My Hometown, you know, where he talks about um, the need for you know, a commitment to diversity. Um, for being able to understand each other, for us all to be able to to live together and find common ground. 
And then as you move into the 90s, that's where you really see him uh, branching out and you know, doing things like Streets of Philadelphia, where um, we, you know we've come so far on that issue um, of in terms of uh, gay, lesbian, and transgender issues that uh, we forget what a courageous song that was in 1993 uh, when he wrote it uh, for the film to expose people's um, uh, uncomfortability and even hatred of gays and lesbians and fear of AIDS. But he did that because he wanted to make, I think, um, the American dream closer to the American reality of gays, lesbians, bisexual, and transgender people. And then you get, um, you know, the ghost of Tom Joe talks about immigrant rights and you get, uh, songs like, um, black cowboys and American skin where he's dealing with people of color and, uh, especially people with black skin and is the American dream really accessible to them? And you can just kind of go on and on. You know, Balboa Park is about immigrant children. And he's played so many benefits over the years to raise money for children's causes because he wants um, the American dream to be accessible to every kid. And then, uh, of course, you've got a song like This Depression on Wrecking Ball where he deals um, with uh, mental illness, where he deals with depression which is something that he struggled with um, since the early 80s and something that you can most definitively hear early on in his career in an album like Nebraska. And then, of course, you've got the whole Ghost of Tom Joad album, which deals with homelessness. So he he's dealing with an awful lot of cross-sections of people. Um, he's dealing broadly with men and women, but he's dealing very specifically with men and women who um, are part of – parts of certain groups that have been um, disenfranchised in the past and uh, who still have some distance to go before they can fully inherit the best of the American dream. Well, I, I like your answer. And, and one of the things that really um, challenged me as a reader in your book was you have um, a, a great chapter about Bruce Springsteen and postmodernism. And I really think of him kind of almost as a romantic. And I think you kind of described uh, you've been describing sort of why. Um, how does this music kind of link up to some main themes in postmodernism, and how does he kind of respond to some of the challenges of postmodernism? Yeah, I think he very much feels um, the postmodern spirit of our age. You know, if if we could, you know, agree to define postmodernism as uh, an incredulity toward meta narrative, <clears throat> as it has been so famously uh, defined. Um, I think he recognizes that so many of the larger narratives that we have always wanted to believe in, if they haven't been blown apart, they have at least been severely weakened um, in the last 50 years. And so you, you look at um, religion specifically, you look at science, you look at a lot of our traditions all of these narratives, including science, have taken a lot of hits <laughs> in the last 50 years. And, of course, with the uh, evolution of television, film, and now the Internet, and with the Internet especially, you've got so much information flying around that is contradictory in nature that it, it, it just feels very unstable, doesn't it? It, it just um, – there's a feel that whatever you reach out and look for – 
five minutes later, you could find information that controverts the information that you just looked up. So you could find something, for instance, that uh, um, bolsters your Catholicism if you're a, a Catholic, as, Christ, as a Springsteen was raised. Um, but five minutes later, you could find all kinds of information on Catholicism that would make you doubt it. And it's true for every single narrative. And I think you really pick that up in his music. I think he feels it and he recognizes it. And you see it um, in a song like Reason to Believe, um, which is uh, a song that you, you don't hear played much anymore. He only, you know, on his concert tours, he might do it once or twice. But that is an absolutely fascinating song off the Nebraska album uh, in which you really feel the existential darkness that he's kind of trying to keep at arm's length at all times in his music <laughs> and that we all kind of feel today where we all have that feeling of, OK, I, I want to believe this or I want to believe that. But but boy, there's just um, – there's just constant stimuli from all sides challenging my beliefs. And so we all feel a little bit unsettled, uh, kind of like the guy, uh, the narrator of Reason to Believe, you know, where he just, he just doesn't know what to believe by the end of that song, but he desperately wants a reason to believe. And so what you see, I think, in the 35 years or so of the Springsteen canon is him gradually moving toward – um, a loose narrative um, that at least I, I think for some of us that, that we can find hope in. And that's where you see the romanticism of Springsteen come out is in that narrative. Um, I think the first step that you see in the Springsteen narrative is the idea that um, life, life is brutal. <laughs> I mean, he, he makes no bones about that. Um, life punishes you. It punishes everybody. But even though life punishes you, even though it can be really confusing, almost every Springsteen character shows that you can fight back. You can resist the confusion. You can keep the existential darkness at arm's length. And you see this um, just almost from the very beginning, you know, even in songs like um, blinded by the light, you know, the, the very first song on the very first album, um, you get this sense of, man, it's tough to grow up in this country. I am blinded by the light. I don't know what's going on. There's all kinds of stuff. I don't know what to believe, but Hey, I'm going to head straight into the light because that's where the fun is. <laughs> and you see that spirit continued all the way through, even in the more serious songs where, uh, you know, the people are just almost at their, their very end. You get the feeling that they're going to still carry on. Um, from Devils and Dust, you get a song like um, Long Time Coming, where a man uh, is a father now and he realizes he's made a lot of mistakes. But he's going to do the very best he can to divorce himself from his past so that his past doesn't weigh down his children. And he's going to do the very best he can to keep going and reinvent himself so that his kids can live a little better. So that's the first thing is realizing that life will punish you, but you can fight back. I think the second thing is that even though there's a great deal of ugliness and uncertainty and darkness, you can still look into that darkness and see the possibility of transcendence. 
And I know that is a controversial thing to say regarding Springsteen, but I, I really think it's there in the lyrics. And I'm not talking about specifically the Catholic God on which he was raised. Um, I'm talking about a larger sense of spiritual possibility that there is um, something, you know, call it God, call it Yahweh, call it whatever you want that is that is out there that we can tap into that there is still hope beyond what we can see. And I think that's where you see the romantic aspect of Springsteen at work the most, this sense that we can experience all of this postmodern confusion. We can look it straight in the eye. We can call it what it is, but um, we can still believe that there is something out there beyond human experience that can help us. And I think an awful lot of people uh, want to believe that. And you see it in a song like, say, Counting on a Miracle, you know, where you get this this real sense that the miracle he's counting on is not just a human miracle. There's a sense that uh, of spiritual hope that he's tapping into there that I think is wonderful because it's not of any one religion. It seems to cut across religions and tap into this larger sense of just spiritual hope that I think an awful lot of people want to have, but don't quite know how to cultivate because theirs is originating in a particular religion, all of which are under attack at this point in a, in a postmodern world. And I think the third thing you see is that whatever spiritual sustenance there is out there, whatever you want to call it, is that it's open to everyone. And I think you really feel that at a Springsteen concert. Um, I'm I'm kind of a lightweight. I, I've been to 31 Springsteen concerts, and I'm a lightweight. And and the reason is is because people love the feeling. So every time he tours, I think people will go to six, seven concerts if they can, because that feeling of um, spiritual possibility in a very practical way. That feeling of uh, hey, you know. There's, there's still something good in this country. There's still something good in this world. There's still something transcendent to tap into um, is there, and it's for all of us. It's not for any one religion or one group of people. It's for everybody. And you see that in a song like Land of Hope and Dreams where you know the train is coming and everybody is to get on board, and it's saints and sinners and losers and winners. It's for everybody. And then I think the last thing you see is um, is uh, that once you get to this this space where you've taken the worst that life has to offer and you insist on the possibility of hope and joy and love and you insist on the possibility of believing in miracles, um, then you're at a point where you can – be a person who in everyday life sows that into other people. And I think that's what you see the strongest Springsteen characters do. Um, they've taken everything that life can give them. They've survived it. They've thrived despite of it. They've, they've um, found a kind of non-denominational faith <laughs> based on uh, hope and love and, um, mutual understanding and community. And then they reach into that community um, 
and they do the very best they can to help people persevere. And I think you see that on so many of the songs from The Rising, uh, a song like Into the Fire, where the, the protagonist has suffered so much. Um, it just it feels at times like he can't go on, but he is going to go on. He's going to go on and um, he's going to try to find faith. He's going to try to sow love and he is going to try to nurture hope in the rest of the people that he comes in contact with. And I think um, that is in itself a kind of spiritual narrative, those four steps that I described, that you see Springsteen going on um, during the course of his life, the course of his career. And I think because he has lived it and because he has sewn it into his music, it makes it a very convincing um, narrative that – it's very encouraging. You want to believe it, and it seems authentic. Um, one thing that just kind of has pervaded throughout the interview, and, and even through your last answer, is you you talk really about Bruce's complete output. And um, I was I was kind of pleasantly surprised when I read that in your book. Um, so you talk a lot about the post born in the USA albums, all the way up until like the Rising and, and, and uh, Magic. Um, What's what's your evaluation of that sort of post-Born in the USA output? Um, does it match in quality the earlier periods? Um, what was your sense? Uh, I think it does. Uh, and I think that um, what amazes me about him is that he has been so consistently good for so long. And his uh, style has changed. Clearly his... Um, um, his focus has changed. You see those first three albums are are so romantic and there's so much about his life and him trying to find himself. And they become very representative of a lot of other young men of his generation who are trying to find themselves. But they're very dreamy, they're very romantic, and they're very self-focused. And then I think in 75, 76, when he begins to go through all the trouble uh, with his the lawsuit of his first manager, uh, Mike Capel, and he can't uh, put out another album for three years. And he spends a lot of time traveling, a lot of time reflecting, a lot of time visiting his friends from high school and from his hometown. And he begins to see them 10 years advanced from high school and all of what they're going through. Um, this is coinciding with the recessions of the 1970s. And that's where I think you begin to see him get that outward focus where he begins to Say okay, I think I've I think I've found myself. I think I've kind of um, written out a lot of the angst of my own childhood and my own teen years. Um, I think I I know who I am. I'm now ready to look outward. And as his career moves on from the late '70s with Darkness on the Edge of Town, certainly um, in the River and in Nebraska, most poignantly, he begins to look ever outward. And that's where you see um, what I described earlier is this long list of people that um, have at one time or another been voiceless in our society. And one after another, he begins to give them voice. And you see it with uh, people who are out of work. You see it with men who are down on their luck. You see it with um, AIDS patients. You see it with um, African-Americans who are um, shot 
by the police. You know, he's writing about that as as early as um, the song American Skin, you know, back in the, the late 90s. And of course, what did we see this summer? But that very thing. So I, I think he's been um, a very prophetic writer. And I think he is a writer that has become increasing more outwardly focused as he has gone along to the point where now his songs, like the songs on Wrecking Ball, really aren't at all about himself. They're about the America that he sees that is still an America that is too far from from the American myth, from the romantic idea that we have of America that he seems to want to believe in, but he seems to want to believe in it for everybody. And it seems like the last 25 years of his career has been that, of trying to reduce that distance between Americans who don't have a voice um, and the dream to which he feels that they're entitled. Um, I don't think you got a chance to speak uh, to Bruce uh, during the course of this research, but if you would have gotten a chance to speak with him, what were some questions you might have wanted to ask him? <laughs> I tried to speak with him, but I, <laughs> I could not uh, make my way through. Um, and I had, of course, several questions um, that I wanted to ask him. Um, one that I wanted to ask him is economically, um, he has, he has this phrase that he'll use in his concerts, um, nobody wins unless we all win. And I wanted to ask him economically, what does that mean? What does it look like? Um, how do we produce a tide that truly raises all the ships? Um, he writes about it beautifully, and it's a great general idea for us to pursue. Um, and it's wonderful that he gives voice to the people who are voiceless, but in terms of actually making for more political and economic equality, what is it that, that we should actually do? I would love to hear his thoughts on that. Um, and, uh, towards the end of the book, there's just this great little anecdote, um, about, the link between Bruce Springsteen and Lady Gaga. Um, <laughs> could you maybe uh, share that anecdote and maybe if there were any others that you kind of found in, in the course of your research? Um, well, yeah, that's an interesting one. There, there are a number of uh, artists that have been influenced by Bruce Springsteen. And that was really interesting for me to do the research on because I, I, uh, musically am not a very diverse person. You know, I have the people that I like and that seem to emotionally sustain me and I kind of stick with them. Um, but <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's really interesting to see the number of people that I've never listened to that I had to go back and listen to because they had all been influenced by Bruce Springsteen. And, um, one of them was Lady Gaga. And um, it's uh, her dad, apparently, was a huge and is a huge Springsteen fan. And um, she grew up listening to lots and lots of Bruce Springsteen in her home. And so you get uh, this quote that she had um, in an interview that I found. It was a very a prominent interview. One of the first that she did where someone was asking her about um, – her influences. And she said, uh, my father gave me, uh, I believe it was for Christmas. I'm quoting exactly now a Bruce Springsteen songbook uh, for the piano. 
and it was on Thunder Road, which is my favorite Bruce Springsteen song. My dad said, if you learn how to play this song, we'll take out a loan for a grand piano, a baby grand, because <laughs> that was the song he wanted to hear. If his daughter wasn't going to produce that song, he wasn't so sure that he was going to finance her career. <laughs> so... Um, she says, uh, I remember the hardest thing for me was I was playing these classical pieces like 15 pages long. And then there was this Bruce Springsteen song. I opened up the book and there was like chords, guitar chords. I was so confused. I didn't understand it. So I just started to read it. And eventually, eventually I got it down. And she goes on to talk about how um, the spirit of Bruce Springsteen's music um, is really what lasted for her. Um, her dad just wanted to finance the career if he could hear the music. <laughs> and so he got his daughter to play the music. But for her, what lasted was that kind of spirit of inclusiveness. And she talks about that in the rest of the interview of um, Bruce's desire for, like I said before, for everybody to have a voice and for everybody to be able to partake of the American dream and for everybody to win. And so, you know, a song like born this way, I think you can really hear the influence of Bruce Springsteen. You know, this is who I am. I'm an American. I'm equal. And I want to be a good partner in this relationship that we're going to have together as Americans. And you've just got so many uh, artists that have a, a story or two about Bruce Springsteen. He's influenced so many different people. Um, just the, the indie bands alone. You know, I've not been a big listener to, to young up and coming indie bands, but a lot of my students are. And, uh, you know, I was surprised when I did the research to find um, so many great quotes from uh, bands like Arcade Fire, The National, um, The Gaslight Anthem, The Hold Steady. Uh, solo artists like Jesse Mallon, um, John Ritter, Steve Earle, uh, punk bands, <laughs> the number of punk bands that reference Bruce Springsteen as an important influence in their in their development, like Titus Andronicus and, of course, Social Distortion, um, who Bruce is a big fan of, incidentally. Uh, and then, of course, all the country artists, um, you know, Kenny Chesney and uh, Johnny Cash. Uh, all cover, you know, both covered Bruce songs. Um, Rodney Ask Atkins' uh, song "It's America" is uh, is one that um, shows how important Bruce is in just um, contemporary musical parlance and how closely he is identified as an icon of of an America that is good, of an America of possibility. Um, and then, of course, you get Eric Church's song Springsteen. <laughs> Which, you know, what what shows that you have uh, become uh, more of a cultural icon and a cultural influence and one that is very romantic at that than having uh, someone like Eric Church do a, a song on you um, that is in itself very romantic. Well, um, I, I was going to ask you what are your, your top five Springsteen songs, but that doesn't seem to be the right question. The right question is um, <laughs> what would be maybe the top five maybe overlooked or underappreciated Springsteen songs. So we know, we know the Thunder Roads, we know Born to Run, but what are some songs yeah. that maybe some people should maybe take a second or third listen to? Boy, that is a great question. Um, well, one of the ones that I absolutely love is uh, the first one that he released on the first album, which I referenced earlier, uh, Blinded by the Light which um, later 
became a number one hit under a different artist, Manfred Mann. Um, that is a song that is, I think, almost never listened to anymore. He never, very rarely does it in concert. Um, it's kind of a forgotten song, but it's his very first, and you get a sense of his um, his romantic optimism and his love for language. Like that song has so many words in it. <laughs> you can just almost see him with his rhyming dictionary saying, okay, I'm going to write my first song <laughs> and I'm going to get as many words into it as I possibly can. Um, and in so many ways, like I discussed earlier, it really captures um, both of his, his ability to see the darkness, see the confusion, and yet rush headlong into it and insist on the possibility of the light. You know, he's blinded by the light, but hey, there's possibility there and he's going to charge right in, um, you know, almost in the manner of, a, of, of uh, an old E.E. E. Cummings poem, you know, charge right in and make the most of it. So I think that is, is one. And then I think you've got a, a number of songs um, from the, the later albums that I, I'm not sure that people appreciate how important they are and how insightful they are yet. Um, you know, I think of magic. Um, that is, that is an angry record in its own way. And I think of a song like, um, last to die, um, which is about, uh, the plight of veterans being sent off to wars that they are obliged to fight. And yet, um, Springsteen clearly raises the question, are these um, reasonable wars? And are these wars that we really need to be fighting? Or are they wars in which an awful lot of young, often poor, often minority men are asked and women are asked to go fight um, to serve the interests of um, uh, you know, what Eisenhower called the military industrial complex um, today, what we would say might have evolved into a corporate industrial complex. You know, are these really wars to keep America safe or are these, uh, is, is, are we just c- continuing in a long string of wars that we started with Korea um, that continue to disable so many people and send our economy in debt and destroy families and destroy lives for really no good reason, you know? So I think last to die is a a great song, um, in that way. And then of course, um, a song that you almost never hear on the radio, um, gets very little attention in the Springsteen canon, um, from wrecking ball is called we are alive. And that really captures the essence. I think of Springsteen's social activism, because in this, the song is essentially told by ghosts of um, former – when they were alive, they were social activists, You know, people going way back into the 19th century. Um, and what he's essentially saying is, hey, we've got a long history of social activism here. You know, People that when they were social activists – they were called troublemakers. They were called anti-American. They were called uh, socialists or communists or people who didn't like America. But as we look back, we can see that without those people, we never would have had unions. 
we never would have had some of the freedoms that we have today. We never would have had the women's movement. We never would have had the civil rights movement. And so by invoking those voices, he's trying, I think, to show people that you're living now. You can be one of those voices now. And if you are, you'll be derided. The people in power will try to crush you, but you need to talk back anyway. You need to stand firm against power and try to speak for the voiceless and move us forward so that the American dream um, is available to as many people as possible, you know, hopefully everyone. So those are a few of the songs that I think are – and there are a lot more, but – I don't, I don't want to – I'm rambling as it is. So. <laughs> no, that, that is great. Well, uh, thank you for allowing us to take up so much of your time today. But before we go, um, are you working anyth- on anything right now? I am. Um, and part of it actually um, was Bruce inspired. Um, he, he did an interview um, not too long ago um, in a very prominent publication in which he talked very frankly about the fact that he has seen psychiatrists and psychologists for depression – um, since the early 80s. And um, I thought it was a very brave interview. And as a teacher, um, I have so many students that um, they they come from great homes and they just they look very impressive when you see them. But they have um, some sort of mental illness um, under which they suffer, be it depression or an eating disorder or um, OCD or whatever it may be. And for me, since I was 14, I have battled OCD, uh, schizophrenia, and depression. And so what I'm working on now is a memoir in which I um, talk about my own journey, fighting through that, looking, I guess, um, in the spirit of Bruce, (laughs) into the darkness of mental illness and still trying to find a way through it, um, trying to find a, a way to have a a good life, uh, a life that is uh, abundant with uh, joy. And um, I've certainly had my setbacks, but I've also had um, some successes. And um, it's something that I'll battle all my life. But I I think what I'm writing about is how I got through it. And I'm trying to encourage, especially students like my own, that you can get through it and that you can live um, a, a joyous life characterized by faith, by hope, and by love. And that's what I'm working on now. That that sounds great. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. You have been listening to the New Books and Popular Music Podcast. Today I've been talking with Don Deardorff, the author of Bruce Springsteen, American Poet and Prophet. This is your host, Richard Chur. Thank you for listening.